Take your Bibles out this morning, and if you would please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, The Christian Gospel. You know, as we were thinking about Friend Day and perhaps uh, guests, many guests being in our service today, I thought it very appropriate and very fitting to explain what is the Christian Gospel. There may be those sitting here today wondering, what does the Bible have to say that being a Christian means? What's involved in that? What is the gospel? And so I hope by this message today, it will answer that question in your uh, minds. I'm going to ask that there would be no moving around uh, this morning unless there's an emergency. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, we thank You for the honesty of Scripture that You tell us what our condition is and what our need is. And You don't try to cover anything over or cover anything up. We're told very plainly here, That without Christ, we are dead. But God, we thank you today for the gospel that you make us alive in Christ. Your spirit does that work of regeneration on our hearts and brings the dead to life. And you give us a hope, a steadfast assurance, and you give us peace and reconciliation with you. And a forever home in heaven. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. And I pray that you would open our hearts and minds. Open our eyes this morning. To see what you are communicating to us through these verses. And Lord, I pray that if there is even one here today within the sound of my voice that does not know Christ. That your Holy Spirit would do that work in them 
that Jesus spoke with Nicodemus about that they would be born again. For those that have had this encounter with you, Lord, that we would live every day of our lives in gratitude for what you have done to change our eternity. May we live always, as Ephesians says, to the praise of your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to listen to the words carefully this morning of of scholar and pastor, Dr. John R.W. Stott. Stott says, and I quote, I wonder if good and thoughtful people have ever been more depressed about the human predicament than they are today. Of course, every age is bound to have a blurred vision of its own problems because it is too close to them to get them into focus. And every generation breeds new prophets of doom. Nevertheless, the media enable us to grasp the worldwide extent of contemporary evil. And it is this which makes the modern scene look so dark. It is partly the escalating economic problem. Population growth, the spoilation of natural resources, inflation, unemployment, hunger. Partly the spread of social conflict, racism, tribalism, the class struggle, disintegrating family life. And partly the absence of accepted moral guidelines leading to violence, dishonesty and sexual promiscuity. Man seems incapable of managing his own affairs or of creating a free, just, humane, and tranquil society. For man himself is askew. Against the somber background of our world today, Ephesians 2 stands out in striking relevance. Paul first plums the depths of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. It is this combination of pessimism and optimism, of despair and faith, which constitutes the refreshing realism of the Bible. For what Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. End of quote. Folks, it's important to see as we get to chapter 2 this morning that chapter 2 obviously comes within the context of chapter 1. And at the end of chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, we see there how Paul prayed that they would understand the power of God. And when he speaks about the power of God, he is speaking about that power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And he is communicating to us that that same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is at work in you and me today. This passage is continuing that same thought. God's power is seen, for instance, in accomplishing our salvation. God's power is seen in in God's ability 
and only God's ability to take somebody who is in a state of spiritual death and take them out of that category and do the work of salvation in them and move them from death to life. Now I want you in particular to see this. It's God's power that turns men and women in to children of God. Folks, that is the good news of the gospel. Now man in his natural state, the state in which he is born is spiritually dead and without hope. And the Bible warns us that if we die in that condition, we will forever go through eternity separated from God. But it doesn't have to end there. The word gospel means, after all, good news, the message of good news. And the good news is, the gospel is, that God has intervened in the human predicament to give us eternal life and forgiveness and peace with Him. Now the first thing I want you to see with me this morning is our condition. Read with me again, beginning in verse 1, some very unflattering but honest verses. He says, And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now folks, what we have here is a series of phrases that constitute bad news. In fact, you don't get any worse than that right there. We know that we live in a world that is bombarded daily with news. You cut on your television and you can find cable news stations 24 hours a day. You can boot up your internet and they're on the home page. All types of news, not just in this country but from around the world. You listen to the radio and and talk radio and there is news that abounds. News all over the place. And much of that news is bad news. Now I think of the humorous story about an Illinois man who left the snow-filled streets of Chicago for a vacation in Florida. His wife was on a business trip and she was planning to meet him there the next day. Now when he reached his hotel, he thought he would send her a quick email. But as he was doing so, he missed one letter in her email address and he mistakenly sent his note to an elderly woman whose husband had passed away the day before. Now when this grieving widow checked her email, she screamed and fainted and her family ran in the room to see what it was that had bothered her so badly. The email said this, Dearest wife, just checked in. Everything is prepared for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) P.S. It sure is hot down here. (laughs) Now that'd be bad news. Now these verses here are bad news. It is a sobering look at mankind today. 
Folks, we need to let these verses sink in though because when we understand our condition apart from Christ, it only makes the gospel shine more brightly. Now hang on because in verse 4 we're going to get to the good news. And the good news will end up being the best news of all, especially when we understand it in the context of the bad news. And so if you're tempted in this first point to pull out your Prozac and pass it around on the pew, hang on a minute, don't do that. We'll be in verse 4 in a moment. Now another thing about the bad news though. We need to understand a lot of people would say today what we need to do is just give a man a better education. And that will answer all of his problems or change his environment a little bit. Giving him a a better environment. Lift him up a bit in life. And I don't want to discount that those things can help. But folks, those things are not the solution. You see, the Bible is saying at the heart of the man there is a deeper problem. We can treat the symptoms without ever getting to the heart of the problem. We need to understand what the heart of the problem is. And that's what Paul is doing in these first three verses. Now what is it that we're told here about the bad news? About our condition? We're going to look at four different phrases here. And we're just going to name them one by one. First of all, look at what he says. He says in verse 1 that we were dead. Every person born into this world has a DOA attached to them. Dead on arrival. They are alive physically but dead spiritually. Now folks, we need to understand that's the verdict that the Word of God gives about you and me. There is one thing that is true of every single one of us right now. These verses either speak of your past or of your present. Either you were dead or you still are dead. If you don't know Jesus Christ in a personal way, you're a dead man walking. Dr. James Merritt says every home without Jesus is nothing more than a funeral home. Every person in that home without Jesus is a corpse and every bed in that home is a casket. Man comes into this world not simply spiritually sick, not simply in the ICU unit, but he is dead. John Stott goes on to say this biblical statement about the deadness of non-Christian people raises problems for many because it does not seem to square with the facts of everyday experience. Lots of people who make no Christian profession whatsoever who even openly reject Jesus Christ appear to be very much alive. One, for instance, has has the vigorous body of an athlete. Another, the lively mind of a scholar. A third, the vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed. We do say that and we must say that. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. And you can tell it. 
They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards Him and the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with His people. They are as unresponsive to Him as a corpse. And folks, it's not just the people out there either that Paul is talking about. I'm convinced that the very reason why even so many professing Christians show no interest whatsoever in the things of God is because perhaps while they have joined a church, they've never been joined to Christ. They're dead in trespasses and sins. Dead in trespasses, that word refers to deliberate acts of disobedience. Disobedience to God. And then dead in sins, this word is the most basic word for sin and it means missing the mark. We come up short and we miss the mark and we end up hitting the wrong mark. We fall short of God's standard of perfection and we go our own way. Now it could be in using these two phrases together, Paul is simply using a literary device known as hendiadus. Where you take two phrases, two words or descriptions joined by a conjunction and they're really saying the same thing. And it's the doubling up for emphasis like saying that somebody is skinny and lanky. Same thing. Maybe that's all that Paul is doing here. They're dead in trespasses and dead in sin, saying the same thing. We've missed the mark. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Second phrase. Verse 2 says, we were enslaved. There's a trilogy of things you'll notice that hold us in bondage here. First of all in this trilogy is the course of this world. The value system of the world is alien to God. It permeates society. It holds people captive. People tend to to not have a mind of their own but sort of just go along with the thinking and the ideas of the culture. Some have described it as a cultural bondage. Now this is what Paul says in Romans 12 too that we are not to be conformed to as believers. We are not to be conformed to this world. We are not to be squeezed into this world's mold. The course of this world. Folks you know there's only two ways that you can walk in this life. You can walk according to the word of God or you can walk according to the world. It's two different ways. The word sees man as a creation in the image of God. The world sees God as a creation in the image of man. The word sees hell as a judgment. The world sees hell as a joke. The word says homosexuality is an abomination. The world says homosexuality is nothing more than an alternative. The word says abortion is the taking of a life. The world says abortion is the making of a choice. The word says let's be holy. The world says no, let's just be happy and have fun. 
two entirely different ways of looking at life. Now the second part of our enslavement, you'll notice from the end of verse 2, is to the devil. And I want you to notice his point here. Lost men are held in sway by something outside of themselves. And so in addition to having a spiritual nature that is dead, there is a power at work in them that is separate from them. They are under the influence of the evil one. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Now third in this trilogy, Paul goes on here to add that there is a spirit of the age that is at work in the sons of disobedient. Now the word spirit here is not to be thought of as Satan himself, but rather A spirit in the world created by Satan. You see, in in the Greek, it is not in apposition to the prince. If it were, it would simply be an elaboration of the prince. It'd be like saying the prince, i.e. the spirit. But that's not the way it's set up here. What the verse says is the prince of the power of the air. Now that's the devil and then it adds the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. And so what he's talking about here is the mood in the world. The mood or the spirit that the enemy creates. So here's a double barrel shotgun going off. One barrel is that you have Satan at work in the world. The second barrel is that you have Satan creating a certain mood, a mindset, a philosophy in the world that is like a dark cloud hanging over the planet. And he says this is going on in the sons of disobedience. That's a Semitism. That's a Jewish way of saying uh, whatever you give yourself to... You are the son of that. And that's why the Bible can speak of those who are sons of light or sons of darkness. Whatever you give yourself to, you are a son of that. And he says right here that people who are living this way, according to the course of this world, they are the children of, they are the sons of disobedience. The Bible says that's how we all once lived. We were held in bondage, we were governed by the spirit of the age, we were men and women of the world, and we thought like people of the world. And that is why we shouldn't be so surprised at how the world sometimes responds to Christianity. Now, third thing he says here in verse 3, we were all guilty. Don't say, how can they out there live like that? Because the truth of the matter is, at least at one time, we all lived like this. Now, obviously, folks, all men do not sin equally. Some are more prolific in their sins than others. Look at it this way. I've explained it this way before. What if all of us today could... What if this were one of the rims of the Grand Canyon and we were all line up back here and, and we were going to try to jump to the other side and we'd get a run and start? There's not a doubt in my mind that some of us here would jump further than others. Some would jump further than others because they're better athletes. They're in better shape. Some would jump and maybe just land right there. 
But the fact of the matter is, all of us would fall short and we would fall to our death. Likewise, some do good things when compared to other men, but apart from Christ, we're nonetheless in this state of death. So no matter how good our deeds might be apart from Christ, we're walking around in this state of death. Now to use another analogy, compare it to a rotting corpse. On the one hand, you have a corpse that is more advanced than in the decomposition process. You remember what Jesus said, or what Jesus was told rather, about uh, Lazarus when he went to see Lazarus? And he said, move the stone. And those there said, Lord, he's been dead four days now. By now he stinketh. Somebody four days in the decomposition would... They'd be rotting more, more decomposition set in, more the results of death set in than by somebody who had just died, say, within the past two or three hours. But I got a question for you. As you look at one corpse that, say, has been dead two weeks, and you look at another corpse that's been dead, say, two days, which person is more dead? Is one more dead than the other? No. They're both equally dead. One smells worse. One is further along in decomposition. But nonetheless, they are both dead. Some may be better than others, but we are all, we were or are, are if you're apart from Christ, Uh, equally in the state of sin. And so we were all equally separated from God. And you know what that means? That means that there is no boasting here. No boasting. We were all in the same predicament. We lived in the lust of the flesh. We lived to please the desires of the flesh and of the mind, whether it had to do with money or materialism and the things of the world, whether it had to do with with lust and sex and pleasure or our choices for entertainment. We were all guilty. In fact, the Bible says the whole human race is guilty. Romans says God has locked up all together in sin that he might display His mercy and love on all. Well, it gets worse. A fourth expression that he uses here is that we were all condemned. There in verse 3, he says, By nature we were children of wrath. Now, folks, there's two words for wrath in the Bible that speak of, of God's wrath. One word is the word thumos. Thumos refers to a sudden outbreak of God's wrath for instance remember in the wilderness when the children of Israel were given manna and they started complaining they wanted something else besides manna besides manna God sent them quail and the Bible says while they were chewing the meat in their teeth God's thumos broke out against them and many of them died thumos That's not the word used here. The word used here when it talks about we were all children of wrath is the word orge. 
Orge pictures God's long-suffering and patience with us. His wrath is growing, it's growing, it's growing. And finally one day God says enough is enough. And that happened to the children of Israel likewise in the wilderness. Remember, he was long-suffering and patient with them. And finally God said, I've had enough. None of them 20 years of age and older shall enter into my rest. God's orge. Well, again, that's the word here. The Bible says, by nature, we were children of wrath. God's verdict of the human race is that we were all guilty. The wages of sin is death. All you have to do to be an object of God's wrath is simply to be a member of the human race. Our nature makes us children of wrath. Some theologians call it original sin. Others call it inherited sin. It's the same thing. King David pointed out that he was born in this condition. He said, in sin my mother conceived me. I think of the story of the scorpion and the duck. The scorpion said to the duck, Mr. Duck, I need to get to the other side of the pond. Can I get on your back and will you take me over? The duck said, certainly not. Because halfway across the pond, you're going to sting me and I'm going to die. And the scorpion said, Mr. Duck, just think about what you're saying for a minute. If I sting you and you die, I can't swim, so that means I'm going to die too. Mr. Duck thought a minute. He said, you're right, climb aboard. Halfway across the pond, sure enough, the scorpion stung the duck. The duck turned around as he was dying and says, Mr. Scorpion, what have you done? I'm going to die and now you're going to die too. And the scorpion said, Mr. Duck, I'm sorry, but you see, it's who I am. It's what I do. I'm a scorpion. It's my nature. By nature, we sin. By nature and by choice. We sin even while realizing that some of the sin we do hurts us and hurts our families. And yet we do it anyway. Why? Because by nature, that's who we are. You see, when Adam sinned, sin entered into the human race. Paul discusses this probably the most thoroughly in Romans 5, 12 and following. Some speak of the federal headship of Adam. He represented all of us. Others speak of the seminal or natural headship of Adam. We were in his loins. That was the position of Augustine. There's truth in both of those explanations. The point is, though, the point is that we were there. We were in Adam. There is a sense in which we sinned when he sinned. Now, there are two things that show that as being perfectly fair. First of all, had Adam not sinned, guess what? You would have or I would have. So we're without excuse anyway. But secondly, and this is the good part, God applies the headship not only to Adam, but to who else? To Christ. 
In other words, through Christ's victory, we get the victory too, if we are in Christ. And so through Adam's sin, the curse falls to us, but through Christ's victory, we get the victory. People want to complain based on the curse being passed through Adam, but everybody loves the fact, and rightly so, everybody loves the fact that they can have the victory through Christ. But folks, both of them are stated there in Romans 5. The point I'm making, like it or not, is that you and I both were born into this world with a sin nature. You cannot change that fact, and I cannot change that fact. This is our natural condition. You are not born with a clean slate. Get that out of your mind. You were not born with a clean slate. You say, well, Scott, that sounds like Reformed doctrine. Well, it is Reformed, but guess what? That That is also Baptist doctrine. Read your Baptist theologians. They say the same thing. The dispensational theologians say the same thing. We are not born with a clean slate. We come into this world with a sin nature. And as soon as you can sin, guess what? You do so. Do I have to explain this to parents out there? As soon as those little darlings could do so, what did they do? They did wrong. Did you have to teach them to do that? No. You say, where did that come from? It came from the sin nature. Now folks, like it or not, that's what the Bible says about our condition. Again, it doesn't mean that men in general can't do some good. Men can do some good, kind, benevolent acts. It also doesn't mean that every single man is as bad as he potentially could be. But it does mean that we are in a helpless state by which we can do nothing to gain or earn our salvation. We are bankrupt in that sense. Now folks, isn't this one Sunday morning that you're you're really, really glad that at this point I don't say, would you stand and let's pray together and go home? Aren't you glad I don't stop right there? Aren't you glad that God didn't stop right there and say, just close the book, there's no help or no hope for you, just go home in your misery. I'm glad he continues. And so secondly, I want you to see God's grace. God's grace, beginning there in verse 4. He says, but God, but God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. I want you to think about that word but for a moment. Usually we use that word in the negative, don't we? Every teenage boy knows, has probably had this experience. 
has a date. Ask a girl out on a date. Next week, maybe she sends him a letter. I really enjoyed going out with you last weekend, but... And your heart breaks. Pastor, I really enjoyed your sermon last week, but... A Sunday school teacher is told, I I really loved your lesson, but... Why do we do that? Why can't we just compliment somebody or encourage somebody? There's all this good that we say to one another. All this good that somebody says to you and then they stick a butt in your face. That's not the way I should... That's... You know what I mean. <laughs> There's this butt that shows up. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't sound any better though, does it? <laughs> Move on. <laughs> but you know in this context about all the bad that has just been said, then comes but. And in this context, it is the sweetest word you'll ever hear. It's like going to your doctor. And the doctor tells you, you have an illness, but we can cure it. Good news. What a difference one word can make. I want you to see three things here quickly. First of all, what God did. Look at verses 5 and 6. Capture these three phrases. What did God do? God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And so in just a few short sentences, we've gone from the depths of hell to the streets of gold in heaven. We've gone from death to life, from hell to heaven, from the garbage heap of humanity to sitting with Christ on heavenly thrones, God has completely changed our present and our future. And we're going to see in a minute how He did that. But that's what He did. Secondly, why God did it? Verse 4 and verse 8. Because He's rich in mercy. God, Think about it. God is rich in so many ways. The Bible says He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. That's the way of saying God owns it all. The earth is the Lord's, the psalmist says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is rich. He owns it all. Well, aren't you glad he's also rich in love and mercy? He says here, because of his great love, it makes me think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Somebody once asked the great neo-Orthodox theologian Karl Barth, what's the greatest thought that's ever come into that brilliant mind of yours? And he paused and he thought a minute and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so what does God do? He comes to spiritually dead men and women who are doomed by their own actions and choices and nature. And through the power of His Spirit, He convicts, He woos, He calls, He says, Come to me and I'll give you life. He regenerates, He makes alive. Paul says here, even while we were dead, He made us alive. 
Verse 7 says, throughout eternity, God's grace, God's mercy, God's love are going to be on display. We are going to be exhibit A of His kindness and love. It's like He said in that phrase over in chapter 1. We will be to the praise of His glory. God does all that to the praise of His glory. How did God do it? End of verse 5, verses 8 and 9. Stunningly, we learn that we didn't buy it, we didn't earn it, we didn't accomplish it. Salvation is not wages earned. And folks, this is where people miss it. In fact, in a nationwide survey a few years back, 55% of all Americans said that a good person can earn their way to heaven. 55% of Americans said that. 58% of Episcopalians said they believe this, 59% of Methodists, 76% of Mormons, 82% of Catholics, and 38% of Baptists said we can earn it by being good enough. People miss one of the simplest truths of the Bible. For by grace have you been saved through faith, And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. You know, there's a lot in life people don't understand. I think of the old country farmer in his barn giving, helping a cow give birth to a calf. And he had to reach and and pull the calf out. And as he did so, the calf stood up wobbling on its new legs. And he turned around and looked and there was this little four-year-old and he thought, oh no, I'm going to have to explain the facts of life to a four-year-old. He walked over and said, son, do you have any questions? And the little boy thought and said, yeah, dad, how fast did that calf have to be traveling when he hit that cow? Some things that people just struggle to understand. A lot of people don't understand Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace, by grace God sent Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins. It is through faith. Faith is the hand that reaches out to accept the gift. It is the gift of God. You ask here, what is the gift of God? It is all the gift of God. That's the way it is set up in the Greek text. Everything about salvation is the gift of God. The plan from eternity past. The offer, the gift, the faith from beginning to end. It is all the gift of God. It is not of works lest any man should boast. Folks, if we got to heaven and it was by works. You know what? People could brag and boast, but the only boasting there will be in heaven is in the cross of Christ. The only way anybody will ever be saved is because God in His grace regenerated them. He made the dead come to life. I've said this, I've said it a lot lately on purpose. It is not because you decide to come forward and fill out a commitment card. It is because God regenerates your dead spirit. Some people want to say, you know what, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. I'm going to be regenerated. It doesn't work that way. And that's why the Bible says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. 
through the preaching of the word, God may be wooing somebody's heart right now, calling to them. He's doing his work on your heart. You know what? If you would have told me the morning I got up, the morning I was saved, if you would have told me that day what was about to happen to me that day, I would have had no idea that that was about to happen. It's like Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said it's a work of the Spirit of God and he compared it to the wind blowing and you don't know where the wind is going to blow next. And that is why two people even sitting together in church, one of them can be broken and regenerated and converted and the other one goes out stone cold dead. It is a mystery. Salvation is a mystery. But in salvation, the Spirit of the living God draws you to faith in Christ and He regenerates you. He brings you life. And all of a sudden, you're alive to God and alive to the things of God. Whereas before, there was unconcern, no interest whatsoever. Now, you love God. You want to honor Him. You want to live for Him. You want to obey Him. You want to be a part of what God's up to. That's regeneration. It's His grace. It's a mystery. Well, quickly, what now? Verse 10 explains what now. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I just want to mention that verse 10 makes it clear that salvation is not the end of the journey, but the beginning. He who hath begun a good work in us will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. God has now made the impossible possible. Lost men try to do works, good works to please God, thinking they'll be saved. It's impossible. But once we wise up to this, we realize that salvation is a gift from God. We're regenerated. Now good works come in a believer's life because he has been born again. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were saved to be different. And that's why I've also said recently, if you think you got saved, that absolutely nothing in your life ever changed. You don't have spiritual desires. You didn't come alive spiritually. Then you are as dead to the things of God now as you ever were. But if you know that the dead spirit in you has come to life through Christ... Now we can talk about living a life of good works. In fact, that's how you and I are supposed to live. Born again people live a life of good works to please God. The idea is not even in it now. I'm doing this to earn favor with God. You've already earned God's favor through what He's done. You're doing it out of gratitude. You just want to live differently. You're now his poema. The word here, workmanship, is the word from which we get our word poem. You're God's poema. You're his work of art. And now that you are his poema, you can go on now to live a life of bearing fruit for him that brings glory to him. Now you can live a life that knows the will of God. And lives the will of God. Now you can experience true life and joy, the abundant life. You're His workmanship. 
I want to ask you this morning to evaluate where your trust is for salvation. If somebody invited you here this morning, they, they care enough about you that they wanted you to understand this morning what the gospel is. Where is your trust this morning? Is it your good works? Are you just hoping for the best outcome one day? doesn't work that way. I think of the wealthy man who was on trial for murder. The trial didn't look so good to him. He didn't think his trial was going very well. And so somehow he was able to get to a friend of his and get that friend to bribe one of the jurors to insist upon manslaughter, which carries a lesser sentence. Well, the verdict came in, manslaughter, he got 25 years instead of life. Thankful for the outcome, he whispered in the ear of the juror who was bribed and he asked, was it hard to get them to vote for manslaughter? The jury said, it sure was. They wanted to vote for acquittal. (laughs) If you trust Christ, His confession before the Father for you is acquittal. Father, this one is mine. Trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. What has to happen? Say, God, give me regeneration. Give me new life. Give me the faith to believe and receive it. Give me everything pertaining to salvation. God, it's all of you. It's not you plus me. God, it's you. Everything pertaining to salvation. God, give it to me. I want to be born again. I want to know you. Now to those who have had that experience, just spend a few moments this morning praising God. Remember from where you have been and remember what God has saved you for. And in light of what God has saved you from, are you living as His workmanship? Are you living to the praise of His glory? Would you stand, please? It may be that the Spirit has been working on somebody here today. I would love for you to come forward, pray with me. We could say, God, touch this man, touch this woman. He wants to be born again. He wants to be changed. Do that work of grace in him. I'd love to pray that with you. If you've had that experience, again, just just reflect on the fact that God has taken you from a state of death and hell to life and heaven. Boy, now, if that doesn't call for gratitude, I don't know what does. So thank Him for that.